I want you to go to Matthew chapter 9 with me if you would. My church background is a little different than some. I got saved in a denominational church that did not believe the gospel in his doctrinal statement. The individual pastor of that church somehow had discovered the gospel and preached salvation by faith clearly. And I got saved under his ministry as a 10-year-old bus kid. You all know about bus kids. And it's not a Canadian thing as much as I think it is an American thing. But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, it has died out a lot. Churches used to run buses. They'd go door to door and knock and offer to take your kids to church. And as hard as it is to believe, back in that day, many parents were willing to let their kids go to a church they'd never been to, seen anything about, and and so forth. And it wasn't an uncommon thing. I came from a home where my father was a professed atheist, had never been in a church service his entire life. I'm 10. I've never been in a church service. and But I saw church buildings everywhere. I wondered what happened in them. Well, this church that belonged to a denomination, didn't preach the gospel, came around to our door with the gospel and got me to church. And I got saved. Ten-year-old bus kid, I started going to everything. I mean, I went to everything. That There were folks, the church wasn't that far away. There were folks who would pick me up. I went Sunday morning on the bus. I went Sunday night, people would pick me up. I went Thursday night, was their midweek service. I went to everything. I went to the quarterly business meeting. You'd, you'd say, wouldn't that bore a bus kid? You'd better believe it, man. I've, I've never, the only way to make a bus meeting or make a business meeting interesting is to have a big fight, which you don't want to do. And I set through some of the most boring business meetings you could ever imagine. But I'm going to tell you something. Years later, when I was a pastor, I benefited from all that. They had, they thought there were three ordinances. They thought the third ordinance was foot washing. So once a quarter, they had the foot washing service on a Wednesday night. And I went to foot washing service. I was the only person under 50, I think, that ever went to a foot washing service while I was there. But uh, I used to, I mean, I went to everything. We had revival meeting. I was at every service. I was involved in everything. I came in on the church bus one morning. I'm 15. And the pastor's not there. And a man gets up and he reads a letter from the bishop of the denomination explaining why the pastor has been fired for preaching salvation by faith. I was stunned. Understand, I'm a bus kid. I, I, I didn't know the going in and on and all the things that went on around the church like a lot of folks did whose parents were there. I thought every church preached what we preached. I didn't know the Catholics were different. I'd never been to a Catholic church. I didn't know the Nazarenes. I, I, I was a bus kid. I didn't know what a denomination was. I'd never heard of such a thing. I didn't know what a bishop was. <coughs> so I was absolutely stunned. And uh, I got in trouble that night. Because they used to have, I was excited when you talked about this, having the teenagers involved, as they, they would have, on Sunday night, the teenage boys took up the offering. And so they would call on, you know, a teenage boy to pray, and that Sunday night, uh, was my turn to take up the offering, and they called on me to pray. Which was a mistake. Because I prayed and thanked God for the offering, you know, the gift and the giver, you know, traditional offering type prayer. And then I thank God for eternal security and salvation by faith and justification and, and everything my 15-year-old bus kid mind knew. And um, that, that led to a confrontation 
with somebody from the church, and, and I needed to find church. So I called the past former pastor, asked what he recommended. He recommended I try an independent Baptist church. There's an independent Baptist church also had a bus route on our my block that I lived on. So I went. I watched for it the next Sunday morning. Went down and flagged it down. Easiest bus rider they ever got. And uh, I rode there to church. And uh, the next Saturday they had teen visitation. And three pretty teenage girls came out to my house and invited me back. Right then and there, I became a Baptist. That's a true story. That may not be the most honorable way anybody ever began about, but that is what happened. And um, a few years later, I began to ask what a Baptist was and what do they believe and what do we do. But that's not how I got there. That was after I was already there. But when I was a senior, all, all this is the intro to the message, so you can all relax. I'm not sidetracked. When I was getting ready to go into my senior year in high school, I was in teen camp in the summer. And I believed God called me to full-time Christian work. People ask me how you know that. I'm hesitant to say because it's different in the life of everybody. God works differently, but God gives a person a burden for that that they cannot maybe even explain, but they can't shake it either. That's what you have to be to be happy and fulfilled in life. And God gave me that burden. And um, I came home, my family, my father had passed away uh, when I was 10. He passed, he got saved, thank God, right before he passed away. But he, he got saved not long after I did, led to Christ by the pastor of a church that didn't believe in salvation by faith. But that's an amazing thing. And, and um, my mom's side of the family were all Calvinists. They believe some folks are elected are predestined to go to heaven and some are predestined to go to hell. But they weren't just Calvinists. They were hyper-Calvinists. They were so Calvinist, and there's a whole class of folks. They were primitive Baptists is the name of the, their, their church leaning. But they believed that it was an insult to the sovereignty of God to give out a gospel track or send a missionary or witness to anybody or even pray for anybody to get saved. They said God's either predestined them or He hasn't. And you are insulting Almighty God, if you think there's a part for you in this process. And primitive Baptists also don't believe in Bible colleges, and they don't believe in full-time preachers. So when I announced I believe God had called me to be a preacher, and that I was going to Bible college right before the start of my senior year, it created quite a stir in my family. Mom was on me about it every single day. You're uh, breaking with your family. You're breaking your mother's heart. You're wasting your life. You're throwing your life away. At one point or another, every aunt and uncle felt the need to sit down and talk with me at some point and, and tell me that this, this wasn't right and this is not what our family believed and this is not what I should do. And uh, I'll be glad to take that just in case anybody needs to be sprinkled tonight. <laughs> and water right handy. And uh, they... It was nonstop. And they all used the same line. One day, when you're older, you are going to look back on this decision and you're going to regret it. I'm not sure how old I have to be for that to happen, but 66 hadn't covered it yet. I am so blessed that God has given me the chance to spend 45 years in full-time Christian work. Uh, and I do not regret it. I'm grateful for it and the most tremendous thing. But I had to ask myself, 
after I said, I believe God's called me to be a preacher, I had some questions to ask myself. What kind of preacher? What am I supposed to do? What is this all about? I had a lot of unanswered questions. I had a youth pastor who helped me get the answers to that. He was great. He's, he's a full-time evangelist today. Bruce Turner uh, preaches all over the United States. Greatly used man of God. I had the privilege when I was president at Landmark Baptist College, we gave him an honorary doctorate. And, uh, you know, I read the traditional thing, we're honoring this person because of this and this and this and this. And when he came up to get the degree, I whispered to him, this is really just for tolerating me when I was a teenager. <clears throat> but I, I had to get some answers. First of all, I had to study and I studied till I found out what a Baptist was and why we are what we are. And why we do what we do, and what this is all about, and what is a preacher supposed to be, why do we have church, why do we send missionaries, what is this all about? And getting a handle on that made everything fall into place for me, and getting a handle on that convinced me right away that I needed to go to a Bible college that believed those things. And that, that solved a host of problems. We're here for a reason. Now, it happens at that time, it was the height of the independent Baptist movement in the United States. Churches were booming. New churches were being started. Churches were growing larger. A bus ministry being part of it. And there was something that you expected out of every church every year. You expected that church to win people to Christ. You expected regularly to see a group of new converts in church growing. That had its interesting moments, I will admit. But you just just assume our church is going to win people to Christ this year. And secondly, you assumed our church is going to do more for missions this year than we've ever done before. That That was one of the themes for every year. The third thing is we want to see young people called to full time Christian service out of our church. That is the greatest privilege. That is the greatest thing that could happen to us. And that's just uh, the great thrill that God sets aside some young people to go to the mission field. Some young people work in full-time Christian service. And can I tell you, there's not much of any of those three things in our churches today. We don't have the same drive to win people to Christ that we used to. I understand our culture is tougher. Trust me, I get it. But... Maybe the reason our culture is tougher is because we lost the drive that we used to have to win so many people. I understand the economy goes up and down, but I would say to you, many times churches have lost their priority in investing in missions. And I will tell you, we don't have a fraction of the young people today going to Bible college to prepare for full-time Christian work that we had a few years ago. So why is that? There may be a lot of reasons, but let me tell you what I think the biggest one is. The parents in our independent Baptist churches don't want their young people to go that direction. It's not the way to make money. After 45 years in a business, I'll testify to you that's right, it isn't. But there's something better. They say, well, it's not the way, and they compare it to all the secular jobs. It's not the way to have a pension, and it's not the way to have this, and it's not the way to, all of that is, of course, the truth. But we have forgotten what matters and what counts, and we have forgotten the commission we have been given.
Would you look with me? Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but his laborers are few. Now, by the way, this message does not end at the end of verse 37. A lot of people act like it does. So, well, you know, you just can't get people excited about soul winning. You can't get people excited about their kids being missionaries. You can't get people excited about trying to win people to Christ. And so that's just where we are. That is not the end of this passage. Would you read the next verse? Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Four things about this Great Commission. It's repeated in every book of the four Gospels. It is not a great suggestion. It is not a great possibility. It is not one of the points we might ought to consider. It is the Great Commission. It is a command. When the modern missions movement began out of a Baptist preacher's meeting in England in the late 1700s. And the question in front of them was, should we be? Britain had just become responsible for India. And the question was, should we be sending missionaries to India? And some of the Calvinist folks said, oh, no, no, no. That insults the sovereignty of God. Missions is not our job. God will save those people who wants to save them. Other people were saying, no, there is in the Bible a commission, a command, an order to go. And they were debating there was a man there, pastor attending, that had brought a man out of his church who was an admiral in the English Navy. And so the admiral's sitting there and listening to all this debate. And so the preacher turns to him and says, what do you think? He said, I don't know enough theology to argue the theological point. But he said, I know one thing as a military person. When the commander-in-chief tells you to go, you go. He said, you don't debate whether it's a wise decision or how it works. You know, and the commander-in-chief tells you to go, you go. By the way, you look around us, you, you, you look around this church. Do you understand the missionary work that has been done just in the Philippines in the last 50 years? It is utterly amazing, and I mean this literally. There have been millions of Filipinos won to Christ because of missions. And that's something. I go every year. I sometimes go twice a year. Uh, people call it the preacher's paradise. They're just churches full of enthusiastic people for you to go preaching everywhere. They'll meet any time of the day. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Cambodia is amazing to me, too. I'm seeing the same thing in Cambodia where I've been twice. But I'll never forget the first time I went to, to Cambodia, or one of the earliest times anyway. And there was a church in the inner city in the slums of Manila. I've pastored in inner city and we thought we had it rough, but I'm just, it was nothing like pastoring in inner city Manila. And these folks' church met on a rooftop of a three-story building. It had a flat roof. And that's, they had engaged the roof for church services. Bless their hearts. They were having church there. You climbed up a ladder and they had chairs and a pulpit on top of that. By the way, that ladder was designed for Filipino people. <laughs> it probably fit them pretty well. Uh, you might have noticed I'm slightly larger 
than the average Filipino person. I was scared to death halfway up that ladder. I said, if I ever get up here and get back down, I will never do this again. <laughs> they gave an invitation for folks to be saved. And God blessed. And they had everybody want to get saved go down the ladder to be dealt with on the ground. And they needed personal workers. So they asked me if I would go down. I went down, led a couple folks to Christ. is great. And then they asked me to come back up. And I said, I think I'm done for today. <clears throat> but I mean, those folks, we complain all over my country, probably yours too, that we don't have the buildings we want, the facilities we want. They were on the flat top of a roof. And there were folks getting saved there. I've seen churches all over the Philippines that are the product of missions. Just that, that play. I've seen them in other countries that I've been to. It's amazing what God has done. But four lessons about this here that you need to get. First of all, the harvest is plenteous. There are all kinds of people out there to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all over the place. It's amazing what God will do if people put their hearts in this business of reaching people. I mean reaching people at hand and being a part of reaching people a long ways away. I preached in a Mexican church. is in Texas, but all the folks who met from Mexico preached in a Mexican church at their missions conference. And they had a bulletin board up for all their missionaries. Every one of their missionaries was to the Hispanic people. And I didn't plan to say this. I never consciously go into any church and say anything contrary to that church or that pastor. That's not my job as a guest. But sometimes when you're preaching, things slip out you know, that you didn't plan to say. They're not in the notes anywhere. And as soon as you said it, you said to yourself, did I say that? <laughs> in the middle of the message on missions, I pointed at their bulletin board. I said, you see that? That's not missions. You're not reaching anybody that doesn't look like you. You're only reaching your own people. That's not missions. And I said to myself, I can't believe I said that in the middle of a service at this church. Oh, it was more surprising. They asked me back to do their missions conference the next year. When I got back to do their missions conference the next year, I'm looking over at their missions board, and they're supporting missionaries to the Philippines and missionaries to Russia and, and missionaries all around the world. That's the real reason the pastor had me back. He wanted me to see if they got it. Okay? I mean, the harvest truly is plenteous. It is amazing what God has done in the course of reaching people. It's been my privilege to do some traveling and be in some other countries and see what God has done. And my heart overwhelms at it. If you've ever been to a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, you know they have the shrunken head. They have one at every museum. And they all come from the same village in India. Village is on top of a hill. I have been there. You know, the people quit hunting down people and killing them and cutting off their heads and shrinking their heads in the early 1900s. In fact, they sold their entire collection of heads to Ripley. You want to know why they stopped? A Baptist missionary went up that hill and started preaching to them and literally every adult in that village got saved. I was there. 2011, and up there, here they are. The village only has about 300 adults in it. All but three of the adults were in the Sunday morning service. And they brought in groups, two other tribal groups. And so I was being translated for into three different languages. 
I'm used to preaching being translated for, but usually it's one language, you know. You say eight to ten words, translator goes, you say, so I say my eight to ten words, translator over here would translate them into that language, and then the translator next to him would translate them to his language, and then the translator over here would translate them into the third language. It was exciting. It had its moments. All the kids could speak English. If I tried to say something funny and the kids laughed, I would wait and then they would laugh and they would laugh and then they would laugh. But if I tried to say something funny and it bombed in their culture and the kids didn't laugh, I understand I'm going to have to endure. They're not going to laugh and they're not going to laugh and they're not going to laugh. But in that village that all the shrunken heads at Ripley's comes from, they were building an 800-seat church auditorium. The people were building it. I said, I, you have 300 adults in your village. Why are you building an 800-seat auditorium? I said, you see that hill? I said, there's a village on that hill. You see that one? There's a village on that hill. See that one? There's a village on that hill. Every hill you can see has a village on top of it. And said, for a century... Those folks wouldn't talk to us because that we were the people that hunted down their great-grandfathers and their grandfathers and cut off their heads and shrunk them. said it's taken us a century to get over that image. But we've finally gotten there. And by the grace of God, we're going to buy a van for every one of those hills. We're going to send that van there to get people and reach and bring that already started and bring them here, win them to Christ. And then with the folks that get one to Christ from that village, we're going to start a church on that hill. And we're going to start a church on that hill. And we're going to start a church on that hill. And we're going to start a church on that hill. See, they got this. The harvest truly is plenteous. You could say, well, there's only 300 people in our village. The harvest truly is plenteous. There's folks everywhere to be reached. In the Amazon... Valley, the Amazon River, cuts across six countries. It's a thousand miles long, the longest river in the world. Creates a hundred, or creates a thousand rivers offshooting it, which create their own valleys. And there are a thousand separate tribal civilizations in the Amazon River Basin. One of the most famous missionary stories of all time, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and so forth, five missionaries to the Quito Indians, is one of those villages. I've been to another one of those villages. They have 800, uh, valleys rather. They have 800 villages in those valleys and virtually every adult is a professing Christian. A lady went there in the 1960s because she wanted to go somewhere where the people never heard the gospel. There's a town on the river. She went to the town. She walked the path into the village. Starts witnessing the first village she comes to. And she tells them the Creator God's in her. Said the Creator God... Wants them to know two things. One, he's mad at them because of their sin and wickedness. Their their whole culture, every village would attack every other village. Their whole culture was built on murder, theft, and kidnapping. Rape, pillage. So God's mad at them. But the second thing he wants them to know is that he loved them. And sent his son to be the payment for their sin. Long story. They, they got upset that she'd called them sinners. So they tried to poison her and kill her. And it didn't work. Then they decided, according to their culture, they had a legend that one day the daughter of God would come and live among them. Then they decided she must be the daughter of God. So the chief brought everybody together and and asked her to speak to them. And she told them about salvation. And some of the men trusted Christ as their Savior. And she told them, you need to go to the next village and tell them what I told you. They went to the next village. I've talked to some of them. Hands up. 
so that they'd know it wasn't a raid. Normally, you didn't go village to village unless it was. But they went hands up, so they'd see there were no weapons in their hands. We just heard the most amazing thing. The Creator God, you know, the real one that created the earth, not our tribal gods. But but two things. He wants us to know two things. One, He's mad at us because of the way that we have lived. But secondly, even though He's mad at us, He loves us. And He sent His Son to die and pay for our sin. And some of the men in that village got saved. They told Him, now we need you to do one thing. Go to the next village. Today, there's a gospel preaching church in every one of the 800 villages in that valley. And the tribe does not allow any religious group or gathering of any kind that does not preach the gospel in their valley. They don't have alcohol in any of their villages. They say there's a place out in the jungle called the Sin Corner, people being what people are, where where folks go. But, I mean, it's the safest place you've ever been in a culture that was once built on violence. I have seen little kids playing outside at 2 o'clock in the morning, grandmothers walking to the store at 2 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's afraid because it's the least violent place you ever imagined. It's the most Christian place I've ever been in my life. It's more Christian in the United States. It's more Christian than Canada. It's more Christian than the Philippines. I'm just telling you, the harvest, it's plenteous. There's folks all over the place. Three years ago, my first trip to Cambodia... Some folks said, would you be willing, we'd have to leave at four in the morning, would you be willing to go out in, into the jungle? It's on a border of Cambodia and Vietnam. There's a fellowship of independent Baptist churches. And they're having their monthly fellowship meeting and said American missionaries went and started the churches in the 50s and 60s, but they all left during the Cambodian Holocaust and they haven't had an American preacher since and they left. They came back early 1980s, said they haven't had an American preacher since they've been back. Would you be willing to go out and preach in their monthly fellowship? Okay. I go out. There were 34 churches in a fellowship of independent Baptist churches there. They asked me to preach on a Baptist distinctive to make sure they had everything in good order. I, I said one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my entire life. After we talked, I mean, they were as sound as any group of Baptists I ever met anywhere. I, I, I said the dumbest thing, Pastor. Once I'd said it, I instantly knew it was a dumb thing. I said, how did you guys stay so straight, so clear doctrinally, without any contact with missionaries all these years? It's a stupid question. You know what their answer was? They held their Bibles up. That was the answer. I'm just telling you. You know the churches that supported those missionaries don't even know those churches are there today. They hadn't had contact with any of those folks since the missionaries had to leave in the early 70s. Guess what? Uh, Turns out the harvest truly is plenteous. There's folks everywhere. I've seen church after church. All of our areas are hard, and we can all tell you why our area is hard. But I've seen church after church after church get a burden for souls and reaching the people around them. And it's amazing what happens in their hard area. But but folks in this area are difficult. I, I, I let you on a secret. It's really difficult in every area. Difficulties vary a little bit. But I'm telling you, when people get a hold of this, we are here for one reason. We have a commission. The reason we have church. If we're not going to do this, there's no reason to have church. There's no reason to go on. The Lord has sent us to take the gospel to everybody we can take it to. And the harvest is plenteous.
preached in Negros last January. Interesting area. Sugarcane capital of the world. Island in the Philippines. Because of the climate, they'll plant this field at this time and this field at this time and this field. They're in harvest 12 months out of the year. They're people. That's what they do all year long is harvest sugarcane. Anywhere you look, there's harvesting going on. And that's how it ought to look for us. Do you understand that? We, we got harvest all the time. We should be reaching people. I've watched folks. They get a burden for this. It's amazing what God does with this. Uh, when I was pastor in Chicago, and on our block, there was a little 10-year-old girl had walked into our church one Sunday night and got saved. She came faithful. She heard me preach on this, that everybody ought to have their own form of soul winning, what they're doing to reach people. So she decided she'd get hers. Church was an old German building. It was weird looking on the outside, weird looking on the inside. They had their own style of architecture. It was so unique that the University of Illinois Architecture School brought the students to see it every year. And she knew people in the question in the neighborhood would have questions. That building is so strange. So she started doing. She'd wait till she saw my car in the parking lot and it was in my office. She started giving tours of the church building. She just go around and say, "Would you like a tour? Would you like to see it?" Yeah, and she brought folks. And she'd show them this and show them this and show them this and show them that and take them and show them the baptistry and said, that's where we baptize folks after they get saved. And then the last stop on the tour would be my office. I led 34 people to Christ off of her tours of the church. I had to stop her. I didn't want to. It broke my heart. But she was roaming farther and farther away from home and, and meeting more and more unusual people and bringing them for tours. And I was afraid for health and safety. It broke my heart when I told her to stop. But I'm, she took it seriously. She had her own way of reaching people. We do a lot of preaching. So you do it this way, you do it that way. You do it. I, I don't know if that's from God, but I know what is from God. Every one of us ought to have what we're doing in our life to be in a position to reach people for Christ. The harvest truly is plenteous. There's folks out there God designed for you to win. I had a lady that got in our church. She's already saved, but got in our church when I pastored in Chicago and she would invent things to have at her house to invite lost people. And she'd always have me or the assistant pastor or another man from the church there. I mean, she invented all kinds of crazy things. But she'd get people in and, and so that they could be there with the pastor or with the assistant pastor and we'd have a chance to talk to them about Christ. We had folks saved there. She, I don't know if you'll even understand this, she was an animal psychologist by profession. Literally, that's how she made her, her living. And, and I've had her call me. She said, I've got to give really bad news to these pet owners today. They're going to be heartbroken. She said, I'd sure like to have you sitting right outside the office when they came out. And I'd go sit there, and they'd come out crying, and I'd offer my condolences to them. I'm a pet owner, too. and I understand that. You don't believe how many people I got to lead to Christ right outside the office of the animal psychologist. I'm just telling you, the harvest is plenteous, and everybody ought to have their own method, their own part, where they're being used of the Lord to reach people. Secondly, though, we got a problem. The laborers are few. You look at any church and ask yourself about that church, what percentage of the people 
carry the soul-winning burden of that church. The truth is, we don't get near as much done as we could do. I could ask you, what part do you carry in the soul-winning burden of your church? By the way, I don't care how you do it. I don't care if it's a bus ministry. I don't care if it's door-to-door. I don't care if it's children's evangelism. I don't care how you reach people. Just as long as you do. I suspect God will forgive us if somebody came along the wrong method to reach them. God will forgive us someday. I mean, our problem is that the laborers are few. You ask any pastor. I preach in a different church every week or did till the accident. I've had to miss a few meetings in the course of that. But I preach at one or two or three or four churches a week. Ask any pastor, is your church living up to its potential to reach people for Christ? And they're going to tell you no. Ask them, what do you need? They'd say more people who are willing to work at it. So, are, are you? Are you willing? Are you working at it? Is there a plan in your life? Say, this is what I'm doing to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, we're not supposed to accept it. And that, that's what pastors are doing all over the place. That's the way it is. He can't stir people about winning people to Christ anymore. He can't get people excited about spiritual things. He can't do this and he can't do that. And we can't do the other thing. Most of our churches have become a list of the things we can't do. i tell you something. He says, pray ye therefore. We're supposed to be praying that God would burden the hearts of people. Serving Him. When I went to our church, I didn't say any other church to do this. When I went to the church in Chicago, people told me right away, said, don't have any revival meetings. Nobody's going to come on a midweek night. In weeknight. Made me mad, frankly. So I immediately announced we were going to have, I didn't say anybody else should do this. I announced we're going to have an eight-night revival meeting every year. Sunday through Sunday. And not only that, on every night but Saturday, we're going to have two preachers. They looked at me like they had just called the craziest preacher on the face of the earth. And there was a knot inside my stomach. I said, what did I just do? But I began to talk to them about what this revival meeting could do, how we could make things happen, how we could use it to reach people, how in the old days, even right there in Chicago, so many people were reached in old-fashioned revival meetings. The first year was kind of a mild success, and by that I mean it wasn't that bad. But just the fact that it wasn't that bad shocked people. And they began to get into it. By the time I left that church ten years later, the highlight of our church year was the eight-day revival. The largest attendances we ever had were the nights of that eight-day revival. We would have larger attendance than we had on Easter Sunday morning. The greatest source of people getting saved in our church was those eight-day revival meetings. I'm just telling you, at this point, God did not call us to accept things the way they are. He calls us to pray and look to get people burdened about reaching people for Christ. Okay, I get it. People don't have the excitement they used to. They've lost the vision. They've lost the purpose. You don't see it the way you saw it when I was a kid. Every church isn't expecting to have people saved this year. Every church isn't expecting to increase its missions involvement this year. Every church is not expecting to have young people called to full-time Christian work this year. Okay, I get it. But we're not supposed to accept it. We're supposed to be praying and asking the God of heaven to do something about it. By the way, 
Mom and dad, if God calls your children to full-time Christian work, it's the greatest honor He could pay to you and to your family. But what might God do? He might move them across the world for me. Well, whose children are they? And if you say yours, and that's the only answer you got, you have missed something. Who gave you those children? You're a steward for God in the life of those children. And it ought to be the greatest thrill and the greatest privilege. I get how hard it is. My son, who's an assistant pastor, lives a 20-hour drive from me. I could tolerate him living there, but my two grandsons live a 20-hour drive from me. I told him before, you working at that church is just fine. Leave the grandkids here. Come visit them anytime you want. He says, you come visit them anytime you want. And I do. I'm the easiest preacher in the world to schedule in Central Florida, I'm just telling you. If you need somebody to pray for the start of Sunday school, I'm there. We're supposed to be praying that God does something with us in our church about the harvest. There are some things we pray about, some things we don't have to pray about. When I first went to Chicago, the old building built in the 1800s, and didn't have air conditioning. My first Sunday was July 5th. It was over 100 degrees. It was an oven in there. It was the most horrible service. And I got up immediately and announced, by my first anniversary, this building will be air-conditioned. And the deacons asked to meet with me afterwards. The pastor, you should never have said that. You can't air-condition these old buildings. He said, sooner or later, every pastor, you know, makes a promise he can't keep. You know, you know. But he said, it shouldn't be your first promise. I told the folks, we're going to have air conditioning next year. And I got folks to start praying, and I got to checking, and those men weren't kidding. The kind of air conditioning systems we know anything about could not be put in there. There was an air conditioning system designed for that kind of building, but it cost $200,000 to put it in. Someone gave me, after the announcement, $10,000 for air conditioning. And someone, years before, had left in a will $25,000 for air conditioning. It had been sitting in a bank for years. I had 35,000. The cheapest air conditioning system we could find was 200,000. And it's interesting, but I kept telling the folks, we're going to have air conditioning by my first anniversary. I said, we're never going to get very far reaching people in this day and age without air conditioning. And, and so, so we got closer and closer. I didn't know what I was going to do. The deacons didn't know what we were going to do. And a man came in. He said, Brother Stringer, I heard you wanted air conditioning in this church. I said, sure. And he said, I have designed... He said, never built one. I have designed on paper a new kind of air conditioning system just to fit these older churches. And he said, if you'd be willing to let me, I'd like to try and build one here. I said, well, I don't have anything else going. And he said, how much money have you got? I said, 35000 And I'll never forget the way he literally gulped when I said that. He said, all right, I'll do it for 35000 we cut that wire so close that the Saturday before the service, he was still putting it in. And in the providence of God, we had another hot weekend. It was going to break 100. And by the time I left, about supper time on Saturday, he was not done putting the system in. But he finished, put it in. I didn't sleep that night. It wasn't insomnia. I just, oh, Lord, what have, what have I done? 
I came in and met him Sunday morning. He worked all night, but it was done. I met him early so we'd have a chance to cool off the building. Not only were we concerned about how cool it was, air conditioning systems that make too much noise will ruin a church service. We're concerned about how much noise it would make. About 6 o'clock in the morning, we turned on the air conditioning system and prayed. And by 10 o'clock, that building was cool and that system was quiet and they're still using it 15 years later and never had a moment's trouble with it. Now, every church, however, is not commanded to pray for air conditioning. I've preached literally at the North Pole. They don't pray for air, pray for air conditioning. Uh, it's just not a concern of theirs. Everybody's not commanded to pray for air conditioning like I was praying for air conditioning. But there's some things you and I are commanded to pray about. We're commanded to pray that the Lord sends workers to the harvest. We ought to be in our everyday prayers. Say, God, you bless the pastor. Use the church. Use our church to win people to you. Use our church to send out missionaries. Use our church to raise up young people for the work full time. God, use our church. That you should be praying every single day. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest... Did you all catch this? He's the Lord of the harvest. This is His business. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. This is the fourth point. This is His business. This is His work. What are we here for? We are not here to settle theological arguments. We are here to do the work of the Lord. We are here to reach people. We lose our reason for existence if we're not reaching people for Christ. We lose our reason for existence if we're not helping send missionaries around the world. We lose our reason for existence if we don't have young people being raised up to be in full-time Christian work from our church. It's His harvest and His business. For my son was born, well before my son was born, I said, Lord, if you'd give me a son... I'd be grateful and I'd be honored. And I'd be even more honored if you'd take him and make a preacher out of him. I never told him that until after he became a preacher because it wasn't my job to send him and make him be a preacher. And I'm going to tell you something. The biggest roadblock in training new preachers and sending out missionaries, I'm going to tell you, you're going to see this in 10 years and in 20 years you're going to be overwhelmed by it. There are not going to, the, the fraction of young people going to Bible college trained for the ministry, it's a fraction of what it was 10 years ago. It's a tiny fraction of what it was 20 years ago. 10 years from now, you're going to start feeling it because there aren't going to be enough preachers to go around and 20 years from now, it's going to threaten the existence of our independent Baptist movement. Moms and dads say, oh, I, don't want my, I want my son to do something easier than that. I don't want my daughter under that kind of pressure. You're going to get what you asked for. And then one day there'll be nobody to pastor your church. There'll be nobody reaching your neighbor for the Lord. There'll be nobody going to the country that you came from as a missionary. I promise you God will give you what you asked for. You ought to be thrilled to death if God touches the heart of your son or your daughter about being in His work. It's the greatest thing that can happen. So I don't believe in making that kind of sacrifice. You wait and see the sacrifices you're going to have to make if we don't.
We're here to carry out the Great Commission. We're here to carry out the Lord's Great Commission. That's why we exist as a church. That's why you and I are here. That's what we got to do. It is not a request. It's not that that would be a nice thing when a church gets burdened about the Great Commission. It is what God has sent us to do. Years later, I would be sitting in a funeral, preaching a funeral of the wife of the pastor that led me to Christ. I would later preach his funeral. But at this funeral, two years before he died, his wife had passed away. It was the her funeral. All the folks from the old church coming together. Many of them hadn't seen each other for years. A lot of folks there that had gotten saved in that church that on paper didn't believe in the gospel. Man, a gospel is so incredible. Its power is so great. I was sitting there next to him on a platform. His wife's name was Lou. I said, if it hadn't been for you and for Sister Lou, there's no reason to think I'd have been in a church anywhere. But that family over there, I, I know they were reached through your ministry. We don't know that anybody else would ever have reached them. It started going on and on and on and on and on. And then two years later, when he passed away at age 92 and I preached his funeral, I would talk like that with the folks that were there. So you understand? I'm here. You know why I'm preaching today? Not just because I met this man somewhere along the way. I'm preaching today because his burden, his interest, his desire to reach people for Christ is why I'm here as a preacher of the gospel. Nobody else ever tried to find out who I was and if I was saved till I was in my 50s and somebody gave me a gospel track as I was standing outside of 7-Eleven in Georgia. Do you have any idea how hard my heart might have been by that moment? And then I said, I know you folks. I know why you're here. Because his love for souls got to you and reached you. I don't know if anybody else would have ever reached you or not. And and I asked if there were other folks. And person after person after person would say, I was reached during those days, those years. That's when somebody told me about Christ. That's when There were results all over that auditorium because that man preached the gospel in a church that didn't believe it on paper. But he preached the gospel and he encouraged people to preach the gospel and, and sent them out to get something done. To this day, Pastor, there's an 85-year-old lady who posts on my Facebook page every single day something kind and encouraging. I suspect she's agreed with things she never ever really thought about. But she was one of my bus workers when I was a kid. Do you know, you may not catch this in Canada, in the United States, bus kids are famous. That's because we got a church bus early in the morning without our mom and dad. And, and frankly, most of the time we were pretty quiet early in the morning. But then we got to church and we got all working. And then they had to take us home on a bus and mom and dad were not there to make us behave. Bus kids have a reputation all their own. And I helped create it. I understand it. And sometimes they can drive you crazy. But there was a pastor that cared enough 
that he wanted his church to reach those. You know we didn't bring any money in for the offering. I mean, I did. When I got saved and I heard about tithing, I had a dollar a week allowance, and I started putting a dime in every week. But I doubt if they redid the church budget when that happened. That helped me. I don't know if it helped the church, but it helped me. I'm going to tell you, it's going to matter one day to you whether you were a part of reaching people for Christ like you were supposed to be, whether you helped make a church be what it's supposed to be, one day there'll be an accounting. And God has given us this instruction. And we have a responsibility. We have a commission.